Hey, you're listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and this is episode 50, a milestone episode. Today, we're going to be talking about growing up in two cultures, racism, and comics. Let's do this! All right, we're hitting episode 50, 50 main episodes in, and this is the first episode in which we've recorded in which we've just hit over 10,000 listens. It's kind of crazy and kind of unbelievable to think that this little passion project has been able to be, you know, connecting with so many different people and engaging in this topic in so many different ways. And we wanted to do something special for this episode. Anyways, Bernard and Shu are here. How are you guys doing? Yo, hey, yo, unstable. Yo, yo. yes, <laughs> yes, technology. The lag. Oh man, this is how everything's done today. And we have a very, very special guest who is going to be talking with us on a number of different topics. He is a gift to literature. In his works, he covers topics like biculturalism, immigration, colonialism, racism, history, Eastern versus Western ideologies, religion and spirituality, journey from self-discovery to self-hatred to self-acceptance, all wrapped up in emotionally resonating, immensely creative, funny and entertaining, and narratively brilliant stories through comics and graphic novels. And so it is our distinct honor to have with us Jean Lun Yang. How are you doing? Thank you. That was such a nice uh, introduction. Thank you so much. <laughs> I, I'm going to send that to my wife. I'm oh, really? We can we can uh, type that up and send that to you later. Oh, yeah, that's, that's so for nice. sure. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm I'm super excited to be here. Uh, yes. Really, especially since this is the 50th episode. Congratulations, everyone. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's been a good few years of doing this, and it's, it's been a lot of fun, for sure. You know, for those of you guys who don't know, Gene, he's the author and illustrator from some excellent books, American Born Chinese, Boxers and Saints, this year's Dragon Hoops, and he's had so many different collaborations and adaptations with working with DC and Superman and the Shadow Hero. One thing that I was really happy to find out is you continued the story of Avatar, The Last Airbender, which I was like, that's so awesome. Uh, a book series about programming for kids called Secret Coders and, and countless, uh, uh, countless numbers. So, so we're so honored to have you with us today. And could you share, uh, you know, for our listeners who don't know too much about you, could you share a little bit about uh, who you are and where you're at right now? Sure, sure. Well, physically, I am in San Jose, California. I spent my entire life in the San Francisco Bay Area. And for work, I am a cartoonist. So I write and draw comic books and graphic novels. Some of these books, I only handle the writing and other ones, I do both the writing and the art. Very cool. Very cool. And how would you describe, you know, how are things in the U.S. where you are at in the midst of these strange times? It's strange. I think that's a great word for it. It's really, really strange. The Bay Area was one of the first communities in the United States to be hit. And I actually, I'm, I think I'm kind of thankful that folks here seem to, to have taken it seriously pretty early on. Uh, so we never really got the peak that some other communities in the United States have gotten. Uh, everyone's still at home, though, and there's still lots of talk about when things are going to open up. Uh, we'll we'll see how things go. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, hopefully this is going to last too long for a lot of us. But you know what? I think it's it's important to just everyone do their part, be responsible, and hopefully, you know, pretty soon this will be over <laughs> before we. Hopefully, yeah. by the time this airs, then yes. you know, things will be all yes. cleared. This that is coming out great. in July. Maybe that will be another reason to celebrate. Aside from being fifty episodes and having you on, you know, we'll celebrate that too, which will be great. Yes. So let's let's start with one of the titles that a lot of people know you from: the, the award-winning American-born Chinese. Now, I have to say, this was a blind buy for me because I was just walking around in a bookstore one day and going through the comic section, and it had had such a unique title and this boy holding a transformer. I got my copy right here, and you know, I just flipped through the first little bit and I saw like the Monkey King, and I was like, what? is this and i was like i just gotta buy this and read this and you know i've read it so many times and i've just always really appreciated it and it has the dubious honor for me in my collection that i've lent this book out so many times to different people who have read it and it's mysteriously never got returned and i've had to rebuy it several times so it is a special book in my collection i think um, it's all of us here actually yes all we've of all us. lost our copies before I know. You know, we're doing our part to support you too, hopefully. But like, not only did I feel like when I was reading it, I was reliving a, a part of my experience, my own experience growing up, but it was one of those early titles that got me started thinking about what it means to be a second generation Chinese. And, you know, for us Chinese Canadian, you know, you write about it, you know, from an American perspective, and it's being a product of, you know, two cultures and the challenges and pressures and identity issues that come with it. You know, what was your experience in writing and drawing it? Were there any memories that really stand out? Can you share with us any specific inspirations that you had for that that big project? Yeah, sure, sure. Well, first, thank you for reading it to, to all three of you. And I guess I should thank the people who are stealing their copies <laughs> as well. <laughs> sure. So, so thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I, I started that project in the year 2000. It ended up taking me five years to finish. So. From 2000 to 2005, I was working on it. But I mean, I had other stuff going on too. I was uh, a full-time high school teacher at the time. And um, during that time, I, I got married. We bought a townhouse. I had a kid and I got a master's too. It was like a really intense period of, of my life. But, but the reason I started it was because, you know, I've been doing comics for a, year, a few years and I always had these Asian American protagonists, but their cultural heritage was never a huge part of the story. It was always almost incidental, you know, yeah. and being Asian American is such a big part of how I find my place in the world. I want to do some kind of story where that was the central focus. So I came up with these three different story ideas. Couldn't decide which one I liked best. And in, in the beginning, at least it started off as trying to fold everything into each other as, as almost like an intellectual exercise. As I went on though, you know, cause it took me five years. So I was just thinking about the story all the time. I don't know. I, I, I felt like I was able to get a little more out of it than just an intellectual exercise. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I was doing it, I was like finishing a chapter and then I was taking it to my local photocopy store. I was running off photocopies. <laughs> I was making maybe like 20 or 30 copies by hand and I was selling them by hand at local conventions. Nice. So to go from there to here where it's like a full color graphic novel, you know, and we're still talking about it. It's just so crazy. It's crazy it's really really crazy like the whole thing about american more chinese is really nuts uh, in terms of like the inspirations for it a lot of it's fiction but i pulled pretty heavily from my own life growing up 
in the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm. I, I think most people think of the San Francisco Bay Area as this very Asian place, right? But uh, I grew up in the 80s, and I think, um, like, the community that I spent most of my childhood in, we moved in when I was in first grade. At that time, there were maybe three other Chinese families in that neighborhood. There were mm. so few that uh, my parents were actually able to go to the school and ask for the addresses of the other Chinese families. And they totally <laughs> gave it to us. And then one Saturday, we just went from one house to the other. Like That's saying so cool. hi. We brought a bag of fruit and we said hi. It was just, like nowadays, we would never do that. But, so that was the community when I moved in. And then by the time I got uh, into high school, there was a small Asian-American minority there. You know, there are enough of us that there were like two or three friend groups at my high school who are Asian American. But uh but that community now is like eighty percent Asian American. Wow. So okay. I, I lived through sort of the, the the first half of that change. And I think a, a lot of what happens is when a community goes through that kind of demogra- uh, demographic change that quickly, sometimes ugly stuff comes out. So I, mm. I think a lot of the stuff I experienced as a kid was just from the ugliness of that change. Yeah. You know what, not to spoil the story if, if, if our listeners haven't read it, but, you know, was there one particular storyline that you connected more with? I mean, like, it does blend three different storylines. So, like, without giving away the story, but character-wise, is there one that you were like, you know what, that's most like my own story? Yeah, I mean, the, the middle storyline, the, the one about the, the young Chinese-American boy growing up in a predominantly white neighborhood, that... Even though it's fiction, uh, some of those incidents in, in that book are things that actually happened to me yeah. and my friends. Yeah, like the words that are said for the main characters are words that are heard in the hallways of my junior high and my high school. Yeah, like, like even for me, the thing that resonated with me so much, I know probably with John even more, I have a very similar experience in Toronto here where I, I grew up in this school and then until high school, boom, all these Asians showed up. But then... <laughs> That made me kind of, you know, the way that you, you drew some of the comic, it was very fascinating to see when that, when the main, you know, protagonist was looking at it, oh, I'm looking like a white, like a white male now. I'm looking at myself in that lens. And at times I would look at myself that way. And then actually by the time high school hit, I was like, oh, wait, I am Chinese. I am Asian. This is something, you know, I have to deal with some of this, this side of my life, my yeah. identity. Yeah. So, yeah, I think a lot of us have gone through that, right? Where you you kind of want to ignore what makes you different. You want to ignore your yeah. your eyes and your skin tone and the color of your hair. You want to ignore all that and pretend yeah. that it's not it, it's different than it actually is. I guess it's also like if we've ever experienced any you know racism as we were growing up too, because I immigrated when I was eight years old to a predominantly Im- a Chinese immigrant neighborhood, and we actually faced like intense racism there was an intense us versus them like even with my you know canadian born chinese peers because they were like no these these guys they're they're not from here now for us like we're we're from here so even then so i I think (laughs) it's just the kind of experience that like different people have experienced so yeah so as a kid when i was a junior high i was on the other side of that right like i remember being with my other american born asian friends and, uh, and making fun of the kids that we used to call that the FOBs. So one of the relationships in the book is actually based on that. And, and I think a lot of that is just in junior high, we start realizing that we were different from the majority. 
So we took it out on this group that we saw as even more different. Hmm. Interesting. So I apologize on behalf of those kids that picked <laughs> on you, dude. No, it's all right. <laughs> then when we got to high school, it just got all super messy anyway. So. Yeah. Then it was a, a whole new ball of wax all there. You know, it's been, you know, 15 years since it was published, you know, 20 years since you started working on it and you wanting to tell this specific story from this lens and representing it from, you know, the Asian American perspective. You know, how have people continued to you know, engage and react to it as you've continued to talk about it, as people have asked you about it. It's, it's really crazy. It, I feel like it's so crazy. I told you it started off as a Xerox comic and now I go to schools and libraries and sometimes I meet kids who have been homework assignments based on the book. It's so crazy. That's so you know, good. And, and I'll apologize. I'll be like, I'm sorry, you were assigned an essay. Why? This comic. It's, I think it's, this, sh- this book should be in, the, in high schools or just in junior high because it's so good. Sure. It's so good. Well, Forget well, Shakespeare. Forget that. Shakespeare. Just let's, let's do American-born Chinese. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. But, but at those visits, it does seem like the kids who um, connect most with the, the book are actually the children of immigrants. Not, I, I wouldn't even say Asian Americans because I'll meet Asian American kids whose parents uh, are not immigrants themselves, right? Maybe their family's been in America for, I don't know, several generations. And, and for a lot of them, they tell me that the book is kind of, you know, like they finished it and, and some of them will say they liked it, but it doesn't seem like they have a super deep connection to it. But then I'll meet these like immigrant kids. Like sometimes their parents are from Nigeria or wherever, the Middle East, Europe. Uh, it almost doesn't matter. And, and, and they'll tell me that they saw pieces of their own experience within the mm. book. I think that's why it, it connects so much for us in this conversation. Um, you know, the Canadian Asian kind of church. And a lot of that story comes out from this immigrant story. And we're still, you know, we're not a few... A lot of us, I can't, I could generalize, but a lot of us are not a few generations later into the immigration. We're, we're just, we're still that first, second, third, maybe. So it's yeah. just generation. So it just relates a lot to us, I think. So that's why I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that too. Thank you. You know, as you have personally continued to work out themes of culture and identity, like what has it meant for you know, your own life. I know you're a father as well. So for your kids kind of growing up in their generation and as a teacher, you've, you know, encountered students from so many different backgrounds. So how have you continued over the years to work out themes of culture and identity in in your life? Yeah, I I think I'm still working it out. You know, I think I'm still working it out. Working on American Born Chinese in in a lot of ways felt like an an exorcism. It was like all these things (laughs) bugging me, you know, and and I put it on paper so I could see it more clearly. So I was thankful. I was thankful that, um, you know, my wife was supportive and gave me the the time to do that. Now we have four kids. Our oldest is 16. And I think their experience is really different <laughs> from mine. <laughs> so, so we uh, we live in a neighborhood that is pretty Asian American. Uh, most of our neighbors are either uh, of uh, Filipino or uh, Vietnamese descent, right? And so, so a lot of their classmates are Filipino and Vietnamese. And for my son, at least, sometimes I feel like you know maybe maybe I should have like raised you in a different environment because you, you don't <laughs> understand certain things that I need you to understand. Like for instance, uh, Greg Pak, do you know who that is? 
Yeah, you've did work with him before, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he's like this amazing uh, Korean-American comic book writer who works mostly on superhero comics. And he did this series called The Totally Awesome Hulk, okay, which is a Korean-American Hulk. Uh, and I, I was, like, mind-blown by what he did. <laughs> and he has this one issue where he gathers all of the Asian and Asian-American <laughs> superheroes of the Marvel Universe and they go out for Korean barbecue and then they have like this super powered fight over the check and then they go like karaoke, right? And I read that and I was like, oh my gosh. And I wow. immediately gave it to my son. And I read it. He was like, so what's the big deal? I was like, you have no idea how big a deal this is. You know how like unimaginable a story like this would have been when I was your age? So wow. I don't know. I, I guess it's good. I guess it's good that he doesn't feel, he doesn't realize what a revolution something like that is, right? Uh, because he, I, I think in a lot of ways he kind of takes representation for granted just because of the world that he's, he's growing up in. Mm. But it also is frustrating. Like, it's good, but I feel frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> you wish you could just transfer your experiences into yeah, his brain yeah, yeah. without him yeah. actually having experienced the negative stuff and just been like, okay, I get this. This is great. Yeah, yeah. yeah, like yeah. maybe I should hire my old junior high bullies. I should find them on Facebook and hire them to come bully my kids. <laughs> <laughs> or, or get their kids to do it. Or get yeah, their kids. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, but I bet their kids are super nice. I bet their yeah. kids are, they, these, grew these up comic in books. the same area. My best friend is, you know? These yeah, comic I mean, books are, are like a, a time capsule now. Like, yeah. Yeah. Our experiences. And it's why, at least I think, we're around the same age. We're, we resonate with this and in this climate more than ever political climate, I, I think the States definitely, we, yeah. we need to be attuned and, and have these kind of experience time capsules to, you know, so that we can learn. And, and maybe he's not, you know, with it right now, but I can, I can imagine just later on, he's like, my dad was talking about this stuff. Oh <laughs> and it's just like, that, that like blows his mind. But it's kind yeah, of like, it's a, it's a commentary into history. Right. And I think like, mm-hmm. that's, that's, I think the beauty of it. Um, you know, like our kids will never really understand, but one day as they uncover, you know, their, their history, then their narrative, then I think it will flush out all of these and it will make sense and be like, Oh, okay. You know, that, that gives it language and context and, you know, beautiful arts that kind of goes with it. Yeah, for sure. Which is another reason why this, you know, your books should be you know, taught in, <laughs> in schools, because you know what, I never thought about some of the themes that you, you, you write about in a number of your different titles, until I read it in a comic book or graphic novel form. And then it's like, wow, like, I know there's textbooks about this stuff. I know people teach it in university classes. But like, just reading a graphic novel, and I just read American Board Chinese, like not too long ago again. And I was like, yeah, these things still resonate. And they still are being worked out in a lot of different ways. So, like, definitely, I think we should definitely consider that. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Have you come up to Canada before? I have. I have. Yeah, yes. I've been to Vancouver and Toronto. You guys have a, a comic book festival there called TCAF, which is amazing. You know, in your in your travels, in, you know, your conversations with those in, in Canada, like, have you noticed any, like, similar, like, narratives or, you know, the way that you relate to some, you know, some areas of being bicultural and, and the themes that you write about? Uh, or are you, are you noticing it's really different? Uh, I, I think it's actually pretty similar. I think it makes me wonder. It makes me wonder if it doesn't necessarily matter where your parents immigrated from or to, 
Mm. Like the fact that you have to straddle two cultures, regardless of what those two cultures are. I wonder if there's always a commonality, if there's always overlap in that. You know, I, I have a mm. friend who is Korean. He grew up in Argentina before coming to the United States. Uh, and, and I think he had some of the same sorts of experiences of trying to figure out how to mesh these two things that don't normally go together, like, you know, Korean and, and Argentinian culture. Same kind of thing. I'm sure it's the same kind of stuff that you all had to deal with in Canada, right? Yeah. You're trying to put things together like Lego pieces, but they don't actually fit. Right. Like one of them is mega blocks. You know, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Or you can go to, you know, the Asian supermarkets and just get the fake versions. <laughs> it's just yeah, like, yeah. this doesn't fit with anything. <laughs> yeah. The yes. yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> You know, jumping ahead to your most recent title, Superman Smashes the Clan, and, and you wrote it, and you, it was, it's drawn by uh, Guru Hiru, your collaborator on the Avatar series. And it's, it's so cool the way that you connect, you know, not only S Superman being an alien, but kind of the parallels with the immigrant story. I, th I thought that was really, really awesome. You know, before I ask you some more questions about it, I have to ask you, where did the joke about cotton candy come from? There's this running joke in, in throughout. And I was like, where did that come from? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it was just part of what I thought Superman was like. I think everybody kind of thinks of Superman as like this idealized superhero, right? Like he's everybody's favorite uncle. So what would your favorite uncle kind of smell like? He'd smell like, he'd smell like candy. <laughs> <laughs> <I think. laughs> uh, but, but at his core, I mean, my when I was a kid, I was not a Superman fan. I thought he was kind of a dorky character. I could not stand the red underwear. I could not understand why he wouldn't wear it under his clothes, you know? And then he had this, like, 1950s haircut. He always did the right thing compared to, like, Wolverine and Spider-Man. And uh, mm -hmm. the Hulk, he just seemed really uninteresting. But then uh, if you read his early comics, and then if you, especially if you read about who created him, it's created by these two Jewish kids from Cleveland, who were, who were immigrants' kids. Their parents were Jewish immigrants from Europe. Then you look at all of the stuff that's set up around him, and, and I, th I think he's actually kind of a scary character. He's like this foreigner who has the powers of a god, you know? And, mm. and I think the goofy outfit is really to get people to not be scared of him. So what I wanted to do in the book was to, to use smell as a way of talking about that. So everybody thinks he smells like cotton candy, but what he actually smells like is like burnt dirt. You know, like it's the smell of what things are like after they get hit by his heat vision. So he's like, you know, he presents as this non-threatening character, but deep down inside, he's like really powerful and actually super scary. He's like way scarier than Batman, you know? Yeah. And you can understand why sometimes in the comics and maybe even the movies, how Batman has that same perspective. And he's like, I need to have some safeguards against yeah. Superman if he ever goes rogue and... This could go really badly. <laughs> in, in this story, which is, you know, based off of a, a 1940s drama, a radio drama, it, it's unbelievable how relevant and pertinent it is still today, like 75 years later. You know, the themes of antagonism, bigotry, racial violence, you know, they still show up in today's headlines. And, you know, though we feel sometimes maybe we have put that behind us or we've made progress, you know, just to have... A situation where everyone is facing like this global pandemic kind of unearths some of these things in people's lives again and in culture again. And it just reminds us, yeah, these are still things that are still there. Have you guys seen any of that 
in Canada? Yeah. I, I know some of my friends have gotten like chewed out verbally, at least at, at grocery stores, just because of the color of their skin. They were told that, you know, hey, like get away from me. Like, you know, I want to do my shopping in peace here. I don't think I've heard too many instances like the States where there's been like physical violence, but uh, I'm still like blown away that, you know, that that's happening. Yeah, I think I think it's kind of crazy. I think I think what you say is right. Like, it, you know, there's obviously been progress. There's obviously been progress since the 1940s. But the fact that some of these key pieces are still around, you know, is just nuts. I remember watching and reading about what was happening in Charlottesville and feeling like I was seeing things that I'd read about in my high school and junior high textbooks. So my high school and junior high textbooks, they talked about uh, burning and black churches, uh, burning of black churches, and, and all lynchings and all, all that sort of thing, right? And it was starting to flare up again in you know the the 2000s. It just felt it felt really disconcerting. So that's that's really when I proposed doing this uh, Superman Smashes the Clan project. It's a Chinese thing. It's like really Chinese to mm. like when you have something really painful that's happening right now, and it's so painful that you can't talk about it directly. Then you go and you find like a fictional story about a monkey king or you find like some past like uh, battle, yeah. right? And you talk about that as a way of reflecting on what's happening now. So th- I, I kind of wanted to, to do that. Maybe that's part of the lamenting process, you know, of yeah. some of the realities that, you know, we face. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's nutty. I, I, think, it's, I think it's nutty that this stuff is still relevant. Yeah, for sure. And you know what, like we were just talking about before, before you jumped onto this, this Zoom call, like we were talking actually whether we enjoyed the actual comic more or the essay, <laughs> which you wrote at the back even more, because it was really fascinating. And I, I remember like just reading that like over the course of this past week. And I was like, wow, there's, there's so much within history like that I wasn't aware of that we can still learn from and maybe, you know... Like, one of the things that really jumped out to me was that, uh, you know, how this world can still run by a lot of antagonisms in, in the sense of, in your essay at the back, you talked about how, oh, Chinese Americans started getting a bit of acceptance when people's gazes were turned away from them into toward the Japanese Americans. And so the Japanese were antagonized. And so then the Chinese kind of gained some acceptance and gained, uh, you know, this camaraderie that they were like fighting for the same side, right? But it took someone else to be antagonized to get a little bit of that. And I thought that was so interesting and in, in how kind of those themes are still playing out in our world today. I, I, and I think, I think that the, the Japanese American moment, I haven't done as much research on this, but I think the Japanese American moment came like a, maybe a decade or, or two later when the Chinese Communist Party came to power. So when the Chinese Communist Party came to power, America realized that Japan was our greatest ally against China, right? And then the story around Japanese-American ships. And then in the 1960s, the Asian-American movement begins. And they all kind of, in part because like non-Asian-Americans had a hard time telling us apart, we kind of became all like this, this one unit or this, yeah. this one political political block. I actually think that, you know, if you look at American history, one of the things that makes Asian Americans unique is that the story around us has changed so quickly 
you know, and so drastically. So, so in the early, this came up in my research for Superman smashes a claim, but before world war II, we were seen as like gangsters. We were mm. seen as like criminals. Like you go to Chinatown to, to buy drugs, you know, or, or to get a prostitute or to get mugged. And, and then, after the war, we became like these loyal, hardworking citizens who were allowed to move into suburbs. So from, from the 1930s to the 1980s, we went from gangsters to like tech support. <laughs> I, I just don't think, and, and, and a lot of it was not because of anything we did. A lot of it was because of things that happened overseas. It was because, you know, America was in this war against the empire of Japan, and then they needed China's help. So China, Chinese people in America became loyal. They became like seen as loyal and seen as hardworking. Mm-hmm. And now we're seeing another shift. We're seeing we're we're going from tech support to being like these virus carriers. Yeah. So it's just uh, uh, yeah. I think I think Asian American history points to the importance of like how much a minority is subject to the stories that the majority tells about us. Mm. Man, that's. That's something to chew on. And, and, you know, if we don't take that seriously, I think we're just going to end up repeating a lot of our own narratives over and over again until we find a way to break that cycle, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know what? I put this quote out uh, from Superman Smashes a Clan, and, you know, you, you wrote it. It was in there a couple times, but it's like, we might not share the same yesterday, but we share the same tomorrow. And in connection with the essay that you wrote at the back, which talks about kind of the struggle for equality and acceptance and such like that. And, you know, based on what you just said as well, what do you think it would take to find that victory or the double victory in which you kind of allude to? What do you think it's going to take? In a lot of ways, I feel like we're, we're either going to, we're either going to get it or, or things are going to re- fall apart in a really intense way. You know yeah. what I mean? It's going to, it's just going to be really, really bad here in America. We do have a lot of celebrations uh, around diversity at the high school where I used to teach. We used to have this multicultural week where all the kids would come dressed up in their, uh, you know, basically their parents or their grandparents cultural clothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we had this big uh, assembly in the middle of the week where there are all these songs in different languages. And it kind of presents this um, really happy view of diversity. But sometimes I think that kind of stuff, like celebrations of diversity, mask the fact that it's just a necessary part of the future, you know? Mm. So to do Superman Smashes a Clan, I did a lot of uh, research on YouTube. Like I listened to a lot of lectures by white supremacists and white nationalists because I kind of wanted to just understand how they thought. Like I, I was kind of, I was looking for the, the kernel of humanity in, in what they were, were saying, right? Like mm. I figured there has to be some kind of kernel of underlying human need behind this really heinous ideology. So for a while on YouTube, every time I went on, you know, it would just suggest all this crazy stuff. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, like really oh. intense, like racial theories. And stuff. <laughs> I, I think, I think w- one of their arguments, one of their arguments is, well, you know, societies of the past, they were all organized around common blood in common history. And that is what truly bonds a, a, a culture together, right? And they'll, mm. they'll, they'll cite these statistics that if you look at diverse communities, like uh, like the big cities in America, and I'm sure in Canada as well, often the a lot of the measures of well-being are lower than if you look at homogenous communities. So they make all these, uh, these arguments like this. But um, 
But the problem is, the problem is, in order for us to go back to these homogenous communities, you have to undo a lot of human progress. You have to get rid of all of our airplanes. You have to get rid of the internet. You have to get rid of tele. Like you, you just can't. You can't. You know, even with this pandemic, like we're connecting over Zoom. Scientists are working together across cultural lines. Like it's gonna be, it's gonna be a global effort by multiple kinds of people that solves this. Mm. We cannot move back into these homogenous. Like e- even if, even if, I have, I have some, uh, some qualms with some of those statistics about. Uh, about diverse communities being ha- having lower states of well-being, but even if that were true, it's not an option. We can't go back. You're not going to get rid of all the airplanes. You're not going to get rid of the internet, right? You're not going to be able to prevent people from talking to and making friends with, and even falling in love with, and marrying, and having kids with people who do not look like them. It's right. just diversity is just a necessity for the for the future. Hopefully that can be realized and integrated into our society. Yeah, so sure. it's either it's either going to be like like the world is just going to get more diverse and it's either going to get diverse in a really contentious way where we're at, at each other's throats and burning down each other's churches or we're going to we're going to embrace it and we're going to meet the challenge that it requires and we're going to treat each other with, with respect. Yeah. Well, here's hoping and praying that that is going to be the case. Yeah. You know what? To kind of wrap up our time together, we wanted to talk to you about one last part about your life. And in a recent online self-drawn book tour in which you had over Instagram, it's probably like, you know, one of its kind, you know, you talked a little bit about your own faith. And like you talked about your Roman Catholic tradition, attending mass most Sundays of your life and how it was kind of weird to do it online recently. And, you know, there's this great, great quote that you had that said, religion comes up again and again in your stories, not only because I'm interested in it, but because I struggle with it. And it's fascinating how, you know, as a creator yourself, you can infuse and express that into your work and your experiences uh, come out in, you know, the stories you tell. Uh, And it's that honesty and self-reflection in your art. And so I was just wondering if you could share with us a little bit about, you know, your faith journey and, you know, what are some of the things that you have worked through or struggled through in your own faith in, in your past? Sure, sure, sure. Are, are you guys meeting over Zoom as well, like with your churches and stuff? Yes. Is it weird? It's kind of weird, right? It's yeah. like you can't give up physically being with people. It's like there's nothing that substitutes for it. Yeah. yeah and I'm sure yeah. the weirdest part too, especially for in a Catholic context, and I have a lot of Anglican friends too, is communion, right? Yeah. Like yeah. That's right. That, that aspect of, of church is like, how, how do you do it, right? You need the priest, you need to bless it. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think I think a lot of Catholicism is driven by this idea that we can get meaning out of molecules, right? That's sort of what communion is. It's, this, it's these physical molecules, and we get meaning out of that. We get like something deeper out of that. Mm. But now it's like meaning out of bits, which feels like a completely <laughs> different thing. You know, it's I don't know. It, it really does feel weird. It really does feel weird. It, it's okay for us to say it's not the same, and it's okay for us to be like. Yeah, like, you know, we hope to get back to <laughs> what we've experienced before, right? Yeah, yeah. It makes me wonder what, what the long-term effects of this are going to be on church communities. Mm-hmm. It could be positive. I hope it's positive, but, <laughs> but we'll see. But in, in terms of my own faith, I, I grew up in a Chinese Catholic community. And I think like most people who are still religious, 
when we're adults, I, I did go through this long period of, of doubt where I considered believing and I considered, you know, I thought about whether or not I actually believed this stuff was true. And, and I think I actually go through that doubt cycle, I don't know, like every five years, every seven years, I'll, I'll, I'll wake up in the morning and be like, I don't mm-hmm. know if any of this is, is real. I don't know why I'm <laughs> doing this every Sunday, you know? Uh, but, but so far, at least, I feel like every time I've gone through one of those doubt cycles, it's mutated my faith. It's like really tra- changed my faith. But it's also, I, I feel like at least it's gotten deeper. You know, it, I, I feel like my understanding of faiths, like faith in general, like faith traditions in general, uh, their place in within human history, I, I feel like, um, has, has deepened and has broadened. And then for me personally, I feel like as I get older, I realize more that I just... I, I need this. It's, I, I think religion is more than this, but it is not less than a set of stories that guides you, right? And I need that set of stories. The older I get, the more I realize I need that set of stories. After reading uh, Dragon Hoops, which I, I got an advanced copy at New York Comic Con, which was so awesome, <laughs> Re- reading Dragon Hoops and seeing how you engaged faith, like even like the Muslim kid who was, who was playing on the team and uh, just seeing how you approached that was quite fascinating to to kind of peel back the layer. And you, you did it in a way which I found helped to, like, it broke down the barriers, I think, which people can just see, yeah, this guy, this guy's a terrorist or because of a certain religion or this guy has this background. And then you're like, wait, this is what's happening in this guy's life. This is how he was brought up. And I And then I could just see how that, like, that was the sensitivity that you took to engage his story and help other people understand that story. And for me, I think for just being, you know, Christians as well, like people, you know, Christianity has a huge knock against it historically too, in terms of a lot of junk. Right. So I, I really, I appreciated that very much the way that you handled his story. So. Well, well, thank you. Thank you. I I mean, I did think a lot about how Christianity is often portrayed in not accurate ways in, in the stories within our culture. Right. Uh, and and sometimes it's really deserved, <laughs> but yes, <laughs> I think I do think about how I would want my own faith to be portrayed. So I, I tried to take that into account when I told Jeevan's story. I tried to really understand where he and his his family came from. And he's just super, he's like a super nice and fascinating kid. You know, I, I found him to be really inspirational. Awesome. I, I want to ask you: Was it an easy or hard decision? to include religion and, and faiths in your stories? Like, like, was it a decision that, you know, took a while for you to think about? Like, you know, because you, you talk about it in a lot of your different titles because some people would think that, oh, this is a very private thing or personal thing. Or sometimes, as we were just talking earlier, it can be a divisive topic that people have. But for you, like, you know, how did you make that decision on wanting to include it in a lot of your storylines? Yeah, I mean, I guess I do worry about it every now and then. But for the most part, I think I write mostly for my life. You know, even when I'm doing something like Superman or Avatar Last Urban, or I'm writing out from my life, I'm writing out of the things that I'm thinking about or struggling with. And faith is a really huge part of that. I think faith is a huge part of who I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not, not always in a positive way. Like sometimes it's just... I was telling my wife the other day, I feel like, you know, our church causes me so much stress. <laughs> like, that part of my life causes me so much stress. Uh, but it's, just, it's part of my life. It's, it's there. It's part of how I define myself. It's part of how I find my place in the world. So it has to be in the story as well. 
how have some of your readers like responded to it as they've you know read your books or you know your comics or graphic novels like you know how have they responded to you and being like oh like i i really connect with that or hey that was really interesting that you put it in there how, how what was this response been like I mean, I think it's been all over. I think um, some people have really resonated with it. I've also had some pushback for it, especially because I put some like Western elements into the Monkey King story, right? Mm. So it's not a pure adaptation. So I, I did get some pushback from that, which I totally get. I totally get it. I, I, I really do hope that my version of the Monkey King is not the only version of the Monkey King that a reader will read. <laughs> right. uh, but for the most part, I would say it's, it's been positive. That, that's what uh, I find is really fascinating about your work too, because you you unapologetically talk about certain issues, or, or like you bring in religion and and culture and, and mythology and all that, and you're unashamedly going, "This is how I've interpreted it," and you're you're kind of showing people everyone's coming with certain lenses and and coming with that. So a lack of a better way to say is that I why I appreciated it has been it's, it's very postmodern uh, engagement on a lot of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Well, well, thanks, thanks. Yeah, I think just being honest about like every every storyteller has biases, and I think the 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 more I've been in com- the longer I've been in comics, the more I realize you just got to be real honest about the biases that you're aware of. Yeah, for sure. You just, know, what- just like ministry, just oh like yeah, ministry. Oh, just like ministry. That's good. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> The three of us are actually all pastors as well. So, okay. you know, wow. we, we all navigate that, you know, through our daily life. And comic book aficionado. And, so, yes. Okay. Well, yeah. Shu and John are more. Uh, they've, they've, they're teaching me about that. <laughs> you know, one of the, the last questions we do want to ask is, what is your approach to kind of navigating that intersection of, you know, faith and American Asian identity? You know, what's the way in which you wanted to express it. Like, you know, you just talked a little bit earlier about like, oh, you adapted the Monkey King story, but you added in some kind of like, you know, Western elements from it or like, so for you, when you write stories and yeah, you've done your research, but how do you, you know, integrate that with, you know, the 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 difference between like East and West, but also with, you know, faith as well. Like, how do you navigate in in that tension? I, I had this writing professor when I was in college. So I majored in computer science in part because I had an immigrant dad, but I minored <laughs> in creative writing, right? And I had this creative writing professor who was Romanian-American, but she was a Buddhist. And then I was this Roman Catholic Chinese-American kid. And we had this long conversation during her office hours where uh, I was asking her about this. I was asking her, you know, I want to write about my faith. I feel like it's important to me. I am not positive how to do it. And she talked about Flannery O'Connor and she gave me this great advice. Essentially, she said, you should never write directly about your faith. Mm. You should always write your life and live your faith, you know, and, and that way when, and if your faith is actually important to you, then it's going to come out. Right. If it's not important to you, then it's not going to be there uh, and it shouldn't be there. But, it, but when you, when you live your faith and write your life, the faith that comes out in your work, will be more authentic and it'll be more, it'll be more relatable. It'll be the way faith is experienced by broken human beings. So I've, I've tried to follow that advice ever since. Mm. So fascinating. Yeah, that is really fascinating. We, we've actually found this quote that you had when you were at a conference a few years ago. And, you know, you talked about like, you know, for you, when you're talking about that tension as well, you know, talking about Western faith versus Eastern culture, 
that one side told you to follow your passions, fulfill your dreams, while the other said secure your financial future, fulfill your responsibilities, and how you felt that later on in that, you know, in that conference, you also talked about how the authentic Christ is found in the tension, and living in the tension forces you to see both sides in human terms. And this points to the need for self-donating love. If you feel tension between two sides of yourself, try to live in that tension. I thought that was pretty profound because, you know, sometimes people will want to go on one side or the other, but you're seeing this, this way of living that is living with that tension and being okay with having that in your life. And even going through, as you said, periods of doubt and letting those times and giving yourself freedom to doubt to be informing how you believe and how, what your faith is. And I thought that was really cool. Well, well, thank you. Thank you. I, I've been thinking a lot about just dualities in general. Like I, I had to do this Taoist character who is Wonder Woman's Kung Fu master in, in a series that I did for DC Comics called New Superman, which is about a Chinese Superman. So one of the mm. side characters is this, Dao, this old, old Taoist character that dates back to the 1970s. So I had to look into Taoism and I, I just found that um, the yin-yang symbol is just so, like it's on surfers, you know, it's, it's a server tattoo, but it's also super profound. It's a super profound idea. And, and I do find that idea of duality in Christianity as well. You know, the, the whole idea, you find your life by losing it, and even Jesus being fully God and fully man. And, and I also even think about like the, you know, how he talks about the narrow road. But maybe the narrow road is narrow because it's really easy to fall into one side or the other in excess. You know, that oh. you actually have to find, it's a, mm. it's a balance. Maybe it's narrow because you have, to, you have to walk this delicate balance. Like one of the, one of the uh, my favorite visual representations of Jesus is called the Pantocrator, which is in a Eastern Orthodox church in, in Europe. And, um, and the way, have you seen that? Have you seen that drawing? Yeah, yeah it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, because, because each half of his face represents a different side of him. Mm. So I, I kind of think that that's like, you know, that's, that, that's the part of Christianity that I'm most drawn to right now, is that idea that mm. you, you have to live in the duality, you have to live in the, t- the, the tension. It doesn't get resolved in the, on the side yes. of that, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I, we did want to ask if there are those out there that want to explore drawing or or creating comics and such like that and for them to be honest and open with their own life and their own you know perhaps their faith you know what is some encouragement that you would have to be like authentic and real about just you know expressing themselves in in their art yeah i i think something that i learned relatively early on in this is that the, the feeling that your stuff sucks never goes away. <laughs> you know, like almost always whenever I work on a project, uh, I'd get to a point, usually halfway or three-fourths of the way through, where I look at everything I've done and go, this is garbage, I should start a new project. And when I was really young, I would just start a new project. But eventually I realized that feeling, that, that inner critic in your brain, it just never goes away. Uh, I mean, no, no art is ever perfect, but usually that inner critic is wrong. And you won't realize that they're wrong until you get to the end. So I would encourage anybody who's starting off in any kind of art, ignore that voice in your head that tells you you suck. It's almost always wrong. Mm. 
I think we should add that into the book of Proverbs. It's just like, yeah, like... You know. <laughs> I'm sure it's there somewhere. Sure yeah, it's in there somewhere. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. All right. For our listeners who have never read Gene's books, do yourself a massive favor. Go pick up his titles, some of the best stories you'll read, and it will make you think about your culture and identity. Gene, thank you so much for your time. And we're, we really appreciate you. And we're looking forward to seeing whatever you put out next time. Well, thank you. Thank you all. It was great to talk to you all. This is wonderful. Thank you. Yes. And that's a wrap for us today. Thank you guys so much for listening and for being part of this journey. 50 main episodes in, and we hope and pray that we continue to engage in the Canadian-Asian missional landscape as we think through the themes of culture and generations and how that impacts our lives and our faiths and our church and how we participate on God's mission. Let's continue to do this together. If you haven't done so already, please remember to rate and review and subscribe to our podcast. That helps us to get this conversation out there and reach more people. We'd love to hear what you think as we've been having this conversation today with Gene Loon Yang. How did you resonate with his story? And what parts of the conversation did you resonate with? We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or email. Let us know what you think. Once again, you've been listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and we hope that you'll join us on this journey. See you next time.